Section 19 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 8, Great Rulers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Peter the Great, Part 2. Among other reforms, he changed the calendar, making the year to begin with January, and abolished the old laws with reference to marriage, by which young people had no power of choice. But he decreed that no marriage should take place unless an intimacy had existed between the parties for at least six months. He instituted balls and assemblies to soften the manners of the people. He encouraged the theater, protected science, invited eminent men to settle in Russia, improved the courts of justice, established posts and post offices, boards of trade, a vigorous police, hospitals, and almshouses. He imported Saxony sheep, erected linen, woolen, and paper mills, dug canals, suppressed gambling, and fostered industry and art. He aimed to do for Russia what Richelieu and Colbert did for France. The greatest opposition to his reforms came from the clergy, with the patriarch at their head, a personage of great dignity and power, ruling an imperium in imperio. Peter had no hostility to the Greek religion nor to the clergy. Like Charlemagne, he was himself descended from an ecclesiastical family. But finding the clergy hostile to civil and social reforms, he sought to change the organization of the church itself. He did not interfere with doctrines, nor discipline, nor rites, nor forms of worship, but he unseated the patriarch and appointed instead a consistory, the members of which were nominated by himself. Like Henry VIII, he virtually made himself the head of the church, that is, the supreme direction of ecclesiastical affairs was given to those whom he controlled, and not to the patriarch, whose power had been supreme in religious matters. More than papal, almost juridical. In former reigns, the patriarch had the power of life and death in his own tribunals, and when he rode to church on Palm Sunday, in his emblazoned robes, the Tsar walked uncovered at his side and held the bridle of his mule. It is a mark of the extraordinary power of Peter that he was able to abolish this great dignity without a revolution or bloodshed, and he not only abolished the patriarchal dignity, but he seized the revenues of the patriarch, taxed the clergy, and partially suppressed monasteries, decreeing that no one should enter them under fifty years of age. Yea, he even decreed universal toleration of religion, except to the Jesuits whom he hated, as did William the Third and Frederick the Second. He caused the Bible to be translated into the Slavonic language and freely circulated it. And he prosecuted these reforms while he was meditating, or was engaged in, great military enterprises. I approach now the great external event of Peter's life, his war with Charles the Twelfth, brought about in part by his eagerness to get a seaport on the Baltic, and in part by the mad ambition of the Swedish king, determined to play the part of Alexander. The aggressive party in this war, however, was Peter. He was resolved to take part of the Swedish territories for mercantile and maritime purposes, so he invaded Sweden with 60,000 men. Charles, whose military genius was not appreciated by the Tsar, had only 8,000 troops to oppose the invasion, but they were veterans and fought on the defensive and had right on their side. This latter is a greater thing in war than is generally supposed, for although war is in our own times a mechanism in a great measure, still moral considerations underlie even physical forces and give a sort of courage which is hard to resist. The result of this invasion was the Battle of Narva, when Peter was disgracefully beaten, as he ought to have been. But he bore his defeat complacently. He is reported as saying that he knew the Swedes would have the advantage at first, but that they would teach him how to beat them at last. I doubt this. I do not believe a general ever went into battle with a vastly overwhelming force when he did not expect victory. But the great victory won by Charles, 
a mere stripling king, scarcely nineteen, turned his head. Never was there a more intoxicated hero. He turned his victorious army upon Poland, dethroned the king, invaded Saxony, and prepared to invade Russia with an army of eighty thousand troops. His cool adversary, who since his defeat at Narva had been prosecuting his reforms in reorganizing his army and building a navy, was more of a wily statesman than a successful general. He retreated before Charles, avoided battles, tempted him in the pursuit to dreary and sparsely inhabited districts, decoyed him into provinces remote from his base of supplies, so that at the approach of winter Charles found himself in a cold and desolate country, as Napoleon was afterwards tempted to his ruin. With his army dwindled down to twenty-five thousand men, while Peter had one hundred thousand with ample provisions and military stores. The generals of Charles now implore him to return to Sweden, at least to seek winter quarters in the Ukraine, but the monarch, infatuated, lays siege to Poltava and gives battle to Peter, and is not only defeated, but his forces are almost annihilated, so that he finds the greatest difficulty in escaping into Turkey with a handful of followers. The battle settled the fortunes of both Charles and Peter. The one was hopelessly ruined, the other was left free to take as much territory from Sweden as he wished, to open his seaports on the Baltic, and to dig canals from river to river. But another enemy still remained. Turkey, who sought to recover her territory on the Black Sea, and who had already declared war. Flushed with conquest, Peter in his turn became rash. He advanced to the Turkish territory with 40,000 men, and was led into the same trap which proved the ruin of Charles Twelfth. He suddenly finds himself in a hostile country, beyond the Pruth, between an army of Turks and an army of Tartars, with a deep and rapid river in his rear. Two hundred thousand men attack his forty thousand. He cannot advance, he cannot retreat, he is threatened with annihilation. He is driven to despair. Neither he nor his generals can see any escape, for in three days he has lost twenty thousand men, one half his army. In all probability, he and his remaining men will be captured, and he conducted as a prisoner to Constantinople, and perhaps be shown to the mocking and jeering people in a cage, as Bajazet was. In this crisis, he shuts himself up in his tent and refuses to see anybody. He is saved by a woman, and a great woman, even Catherine, his wife, who originally was a poor peasant girl in Livonia, and who after various adventures became the wife of a young Swedish officer killed at the Battle of Marienburg, and then the mistress of Prince Mentikoff, and then of Peter himself, who at length married her. An incident, says Voltaire, which fortune and merit never before produced in the annals of the world. She suggested negotiation, when Peter was in the very jaws of destruction, and which nobody had thought of. She collects together her jewels and all the valuables she can find, and sends them to the Turkish general as a present, and favorable terms are secured. But Peter loses Azov, and is shut out from the Black Sea, and is compelled to withdraw from the vicinity of the Danube. The Baltic is, however, still open to him, and in the meantime he has transferred his capital to a new city, which he built on the Gulf of Finland. It was during his Swedish war, about the year 1702, when he had driven the Swedes from Ladoga and the Neva, that he fixed his eyes upon a miserable morass, a delta half under water, formed by the dividing branches of the Neva, as the future seat of his vast empire. It was a poor site for a capital city, inaccessible by water half the year, without stones, without wood, without any building materials, with a barren soil, and liable to be submerged in a storm. 
some would say it was an immense mistake to select such a place for the capital of an empire stretching even to the pacific ocean but it was the only place he could get which opened a water communication with western europe he could not europeanize his empire without some such location for his new capital so st petersburg arose above the marshes of the neva as if by magic built in a year on piles although it cost him the lives of one hundred thousand men we never could look on this capital says motley with its imposing though monotonous architecture its colossal squares its vast colonnades its endless vistas its spires and minarets sheathed in barbaric gold and flashing in the sun and remember the magical rapidity with which it was built without recalling milton's description of pandemonium as bees in springtime when the sun with taurus rides pour forth their populous youth about the hive in clusters they among the fresh dews and flowers fly to and fro or on the smoothed plank the suburb of their straw-built citadel now rubbed with balm expatiate and confer their state affairs so thick the airy crowd swarmed and were straightened till the signal given behold a wonder the transfer of the seat of government by the removal of the senate from moscow was effected a few years afterwards since that time the repudiated oriental capital of the ancient czars with her golden tiara and eastern robe has sat like hagar in the wilderness deserted and lonely in all her barbarian beauty yet even now in many a backward look and longing sigh she reads plainly enough that she is not forgotten by her sovereign that she is still at heart preferred and that she will eventually triumph over her usurping and artificial rival so writes a great historian but to me it seems that the longing eyes of the emperor of russia are not turned to the old barbaric capital but to a still more ancient capital that which constantine with far-seeing vision selected as the central city of the decaying empire of the romans easily defended resting on both europe and asia with access to the mediterranean and black seas the most magnificent site for the capital of a great empire on the face of the globe which is needed by russia if she is to preserve her maritime power and which nothing but the jealousy of the western nations has prevented her from twice seizing within a single generation we say westward the star of empire takes its way but an empire larger in its territories than all europe and constantly augmenting its resources although still cossack still undeveloped has its eye on eastern not western extension until china herself with her four thousand years of civilization and her four hundred millions of people may become a spoil to be divided between the emperor of russia and the empress of india not as banded and united robbers dividing their spoil but the one encroaching from the west and north and the other from the west and south Peter, after having realized the great objects to which he early aspired, after having founded a navy and reorganized his army, and added provinces to his empire, and partially civilized it, and given to it a new capital, now meditated a second tour of Europe, this time to be accompanied by his wife. Thirteen years had elapsed since he worked as a ship carpenter in the dockyards of Holland. He was now forty-three years old, still manly, vigorous, and inquiring. In 1715, just as Louis had completed his brilliant and yet unfortunate career, Peter first revisited the scene of his early labors, where he was enthusiastically received, and was afterwards entertained with great distinction at Paris. He continued his studies in art, in science, and laws, saw everything, and was particularly impressed with the tomb of Richelieu. Great man! 
apostrophizes the Tsar. I would give half of my kingdom to learn from thee how to govern the other half. Such remarks indicate that he knew something of history and comprehended the mission of the great cardinal, which was to establish absolutism as one of the needed forces of the 17th century, for it was Richelieu, hateful as is his character, who built up the French monarchy. From Paris, Peter proceeded to Berlin, where he was received with equal attentions. He inspired universal respect, although his aspect was fierce, his habits rough, and his manners uncouth. The one thing which marked him as a great man was his force of character. He was undazzled and unseduced, plain, simple, temperate, self-possessed, and straightforward. He had not worked for himself, but for his country, and everybody knew it. His wife, Catherine, also a great woman, did not make so good an impression as he did, being fat, vulgar, and covered with jewels and orders and crosses. I suppose both of them were what we now should call plain people. Station, power, and wealth seem to have very little effect on the manners and habits of those who have arisen by extraordinary talents to an exalted position. Nor does this position develop pride as much as is generally supposed. Pride is born in a man and will appear if he is ever so lowly as also vanity, the more amiable quality, which expends itself in hospitalities and ostentations. The proud Gladstone dresses like a Methodist minister and does not seem to care what kind of hat he wears. The vain Beaconsfield loved honors and stars and flatteries and aristocratic insignia. If he had been rich, he would have been prodigal and given great banquets. Peter made no display and saved his money for useful purposes. It would seem that most of the Russian monarchs have retained simplicity in their private lives. The closing years of Peter were saddened by a great tragedy, as were those of David. Both these monarchs had the misfortune to have rebellious and unworthy sons, who were heirs to the throne. Alexis was as great a trial to Peter as Absalom was to David. He was hostile to reforms, was in league with his father's enemies, and was hopelessly stupid and profligate. He was not vain, ambitious, and beautiful like the son of David, but coarse, in bondage to priests, fond of the society of the weak and dissipated, and utterly unfitted to rule an empire. Had he succeeded Peter, the life-work of Peter would have been wasted. His reign would have been as disastrous to Russia as that of Mary, Queen of Scots, would have been to England, had she succeeded Elizabeth. The patience of the father was at last exhausted. He had remonstrated and threatened to no purpose. The young man would not reform his habits or abstain from dangerous intrigues. He got beastly drunk with convivial friends and robbed and cheated his father whenever he got a chance. What was Peter to do with such a rebellious, undutiful, profligate, silly youth as Alexis, a sot, a bigot, and a liar? Should he leave him the work of carrying out his policy and aims? It would be weakness and madness. It seemed to him that he had nothing to do but disinherit him. In so doing, he would render no injustice. Alexis had no claim to the throne like the eldest son of Victoria. The throne belonged to Peter. He had no fetters on him like a feudal sovereign. He could elect whom he pleased to inherit his vast empire. It was not his son he loved best, but his country. He had the right to appoint any successor he pleased, and he would naturally select one who would carry out his plans and rule ably. So he disinherited his eldest son, Alexis, and did it in the virtue of the power which he imagined he had received, like an old Jewish patriarch, from God Almighty. There was no law of Russia designating the eldest son as the Tsar's successor. No one can reasonably blame Peter for disinheriting this worthless son, whom he had ceased to love, whom he even despised. Having disinherited him, out of regard to public interests more than personal dislike, the question arises, what shall he do with him? 
Shall he shut him in a state prison, or confine him to a convent, or make way with him? One of these terrible alternatives he must take. What struggles of his soul to decide which were best? We pity a man compelled to make such a choice. Any choice was bad, and full of perils and calumnies. Whatever way he turned was full of obstacles. If he should shut him up, the priests and humiliated boyars and other intriguing rascals might make him emperor after Peter's death, and thus create a counter-reformation and upset the work of Peter's life. If he should make way with Alexis, the curses of his enemies and the execrations of Europe and posterity would follow him as an unnatural father. David, with his tender nature and deep affection, would have spared Absalom if all the hosts of Israel had fallen and his throne were overturned. But Peter was not so weak as David. He was stern and severe. He decided to bring his son to trial for conspiracy and rebellion. The court found him guilty. The ministers, generals, and senators of the empire pronounced sentence of death upon him. Would the father have used his prerogative and pardoned him? That we can never know. Some think that Peter did not intend to execute the sentence. At any rate, he was mercifully delivered from his dilemma. Alexis, frightened and apparently contrite, was seized with a fit of apoplexy, and died imploring his father's pardon. This tragedy is regarded as the great stain on the reign of Peter. It shocked the civilized world. I do not wish to exculpate Peter from cruelty or hard-heartedness. I would neither justify him nor condemn him. In this matter, I think, he is to be judged by the supreme tribunal of heaven. I do not know enough to acquit or condemn him. All I know is that his treatment of his son was both a misfortune and a stain on his memory. The people to decide this point are those rich fathers who have rebellious, prodigal, reckless, and worthless sons, hopelessly dissipated and rendered imbecile by self-indulgence and wasteful revels, or those people who discuss the expediency and apparent state necessity for the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, when the welfare of a great kingdom was set against the ties of blood. After the death of Alexis, a few more years are given to the Tsar to follow out his improvements, centralize his throne, and extend his territories both on the Baltic and in the east. The death of Charles Twelfth enabled him to take what Swedish provinces he needed to protect his mercantile interests and to snatch from Persia the southern coast of the Caspian, the original kingdom of Cyrus. "'It is not land I want,' said he, "'but water.' This is the key to all his conquests. He wanted an outlet to the sea." on both sides of his empire. He did not aim at territorial enlargement so much as at facilities to enrich and civilize his empire. Having done his work, the work, I think, for which he was raised up, he sets about the succession to his throne. Amid unprecedented pomp, he celebrates the coronation of his faithful and devoted wife, to whom he also has been faithful. It is she only who understands and can carry out his imperial policy. He himself, at Moscow, 1724, amid unusual solemnities, placed the imperial crown upon her brow, and proudly and yet humbly walked before her in the gorgeous procession as a captain of her guard. Before all the great dignitaries of his empire, he gives the following reasons for his course. The Empress Catherine, our dearest consort, was an important help to us in all our dangers not in war alone, but in other expeditions in which she voluntarily accompanied us, serving us with her able counsel, notwithstanding the natural weakness of her sex, more particularly at the Battle of Pruth, when our army was reduced to 22,000 men, while the Turks were 200,000 strong. It was in this desperate condition, above all others, that she signalized her zeal by a courage superior to her sex. 
for which reasons and in virtue of that power which god has given us we thus honor our spouse with the imperial crown peter died in the following year after a reign of more than forty years bequeathing a centralized empire to his successors a large and disciplined army a respectable navy and many improvements in agriculture manufactures commerce and the arts yea schools and universities for the education of the higher classes whatever may have been the fault of peter history cannot accuse him of ingratitude or insincerity or weak affections nothing of which is seen in his treatment of the honest dutchman in whose yard he worked as a common laborer of leffert whom he made admiral of his fleet or of menshikoff whom he elevated to the second place in his empire peter was not a great warrior but he created armies he had traits in common with barbarians but he bequeathed a new civilization and dispelled the night of hereditary darkness he owed nothing to art he looms up as a prodigy of nature he cared nothing for public opinion he left the moral influence of a great example he began with no particular aim except to join his country to the sea he bequeathed a policy of indefinite expansion he did not leave free institutions for his country was not prepared for them but he animated thirty millions with an intense and religious loyalty he did not emancipate serfs but he bequeathed a power which enabled his successors to loosen fetters with safety he degraded nobles but his nobles would have prevented if they could the emancipation of the people he may have wasted his energies in condescending to mean details and insisted on doing everything with his own hands from drummer to general and cabin boy to admiral winning battles with his own sword and singing in the choir as head of the church but in so doing he made the mistake of charlemagne whom he strikingly resembles in his iron will his herculean energies and his enlightened mind he could not convert his subjects from cattle into men even had he wished for civilization is a long and tedious process but he made them the subjects of a great empire destined to spread from sea to sea certainly he was in advance of his people he broke away from the ideas which enslaved them he may have been despotic and inexorable and hard-hearted but that was just such a man as his country needed for a ruler mr motley likens him to a huge engine placed upon the earth to effect a certain task working its mighty arms night and day with ceaseless and untiring energy crashing through all obstacles and annihilating everything in its path with the unfeeling precision of gigantic mechanism i should say he was an instrument of almighty power to bring good out of evil and prepare the way for a civilization the higher elements of which he did not understand and with which he would not probably have sympathized who shall say as we survey his mighty labors and the indomitable energy and genius which inspired them that he does not deserve the title which civilization has accorded him yea a higher title than that of great even that of father of his country authorities journal de pierre Legrand, history of peter the great by alexander gordon john bell's travels in russia henry bruce's memoirs of peter motley's life of peter the first voltaire's history of the russian empire under peter the great voltaire's life of charles the twelfth biographique universe encyclopedia britannica article russia barrow's memoir of the life of peter the great schuyler's history of peter the great end of section 19